Good morning. Um, I know it's such a beautiful day outside. You hate to miss it by being in here. But uh, so the way I think we should think about the bad weather is we redeem it because now we have a good reason to being inside and studying God's Word. So amen to that, right? Nobody bought that at all. All right, so positive spin on something negative um, sometimes can be interpreted as what we're trying to do with the book of Ecclesiastes. That is not the case, however. Ecclesiastes does feel like it has a negative message very often, but it actually has a very positive message in the end. You just have to look at it from the right perspective. So grab your Bible. We are going to complete our study of Ecclesiastes this morning, so maybe some of you will get legitimately excited on that note. Ecclesiastes chapter 11, we'll pick up in verse 9, and we will finish the book. So we've been going through Ecclesiastes for several weeks now, and it's been, I think, a very interesting take own reality. And so if you think about Ecclesiastes, very honestly, as we read through the book, it seems like there's a sense in which our modern word for the attitude of the, the Kohelet, the Ecclesiastes, or the preacher, whichever word you want to use, there's different words, different translations. But uh, this guy, Solomon, who's speaking to us, seems to be at oftentimes just very pessimistic about life. We, no matter how hard we try, Murphy's Law comes into play at some point and is going to wreck everything. Now, he didn't call it Murphy's Law. That's our understanding. But there's that idea. So we've seen a lot of, well, you can work really hard. You can build up stuff, but you don't know what's going to happen when you die. You don't know when you're going to die. You're eventually going to die. And even if you build up some amazing fortune, you build the system, progress, you might leave it to your son who turns out to ruin everything, which, of course, is exactly what happened with Solomon. But there's this, no matter how good things seem, there's always the potential that it's really just going to fall apart in the end. Now, we would say that is kind of a negative way to think about life. It's not positive thinking. And some people, you know, instead of saying, well, I'm a pessimist, they just say, no, I'm just being real. Because we say statements like that because we recognize that life really does feel like that at times, where we think we're in control, we're, we're doing something to, to reach some particular goal, some particular end, and it all falls apart and no control you have over whatsoever. You, maybe you did everything right, and it went wrong anyway. There's so many things in life we don't control. And this is the time of year where we really put a high emphasis on our control, because next Wednesday will be um, the first, the beginning of the new year. And I'm not sure what the psychology is there, but for some reason, the new year is exactly when we want to start doing better with our lives. And so we make New Year's resolutions. Anybody already have some written down, putting it off, a little bit of procrastination? You'll do it New Year's Eve. I understand. That's, I usually write mine like the first or second um, of the year. I'm a little, little behind like that. But uh, we have a tendency to do New Year's resolutions. And I found that with myself, the older I get, um, the less I care about New Year's resolutions. For the simple fact of the matter is, I might make two weeks maybe a month, and what's going to happen? I'm just going to go back to life as it was. And so we're not very good at New Year's resolutions. And every time we try to set up these ideas, now I say, you know, we never keep New Year's resolutions. You've probably kept a few over your life. Maybe it wasn't a New Year's, but at some point in life, you made some decisions, some change, and stuck it out. But we all know that the reality is many of these things, we don't stick out, we don't change. It's like we're just... In a river, we're a leaf floating downstream, and we're going to float the direction that stream takes us 
And we like to be, you know, positive thinking sometimes and say, well, I'm going to be the one that swims upstream and, and then you get caught by the fishermen. You know, it's just like there's always something. If I'm sounding pessimistic, okay, well, maybe to some degree we could say Ecclesiastes is pessimistic. But let's give it the proper spin, the proper context, the proper viewing angle, and we'll see what's going on in Ecclesiastes. So let's go ahead and dive in. We're going to have fun time with the passage this morning. Ecclesiastes chapter 11. I'm going to pick up in verse 9, and let's just see what he has to say. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth. Now, we can say a lot of things already at this point. We, we all recognize that uh, there's a statement, you know, youth is wasted on the young. Am I saying that right? You understand, know, like, oh, if I could only go back and be physically so healthy, but be wiser, you know, there's this relation. The older you get, and I didn't understand that as a kid. I was like, I feel pretty wise. I don't understand what the, what the deal is. And now as I'm a 36-year-old looking back, and it's like, wow, I had no idea. And I'm sure there's some of you in the room looking back at my age saying, he has no idea. And maybe that's true. You know, there's some people in the room who think I'm ancient, and there's some people in the room who think I'm a baby. So, you know, it's a spectrum. There's a relative idea here. But we are talking youth, you know, young maybe adolescent, maybe just young adulthood here. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes. Now, don't read the rest of the verse, and that sounds like something you would hear at a graduation speech. It's like, young people, you just follow your heart, and whatever you see before you, you go and you do it. I was invited to speak at a baccalaureate thing one time, and uh, I don't know, maybe I feel a little more Ecclesiastes. I've felt that way most of my life. And I went, and my advice to them, actually didn't, I actually, oddly enough, I was there as a vocal guest for singing, and there was another preacher there who was preaching, and uh, maybe that was backwards. But anyway, I, I sing my song, and then I just, I, I have to make a statement, because just in my DNA, I have to speak more than sing. So, so I make a statement before the preacher gets up, and the one thing I tell the crowd is like, guys, I know everybody's going to tell you to follow your heart, but you can't trust your heart. You're wicked and evil. You need to just follow Jesus instead. You know, it was just a real quick kind of thing, and then the speaker gets up, and guess what his whole message was? Just follow your heart. <laughs> and then it's just like, okay, I'm, I'm feeling awkward now. I'm going to leave the room. Well, you have scripture verses that say that, right? It said that literally here, walk in the ways of your heart and in the sight of your eye. So, do what you want to do. Have a good time. Look at life and say, man, whatever's out there, I'm going I'm to just live it up to the fullest. I'm going to have a good time. And a lot of people view college that way. And we think of college as kind of a younger time of life where you go and you, get the, you learn and get the stupid out at the same time so that when you start real life, you, you have learned something and the stupid is behind you. We got to have that mentality, man. Live it up while you're there. You shouldn't have that mentality. I'm not telling you to, but it feels like that's what's going on. It almost feels like we encourage that world. In fact, there's so many things in life that reinforce this idea. And the problem is, and this happens with most of Scripture, is when something sounds too good to be true, it's because you didn't read the second half of the verse. All right, so don't just walk in the ways of your heart and in the sight of your eyes, but know that for all these things... God will bring you into judgment. Right, so hear what the preacher's really saying. He says, yeah, go do whatever you want. God's going to punish you for it. But sure, have a good time. Go off, 
live your life, have your best life now, do, do whatever pleases you, focus on whatever your heart desires, run after that, achieve that, and one day you're going to die and God is going to punish you for it. All right, yeah, well, that's not nearly as encouraging. It's not Caleb-y enough if we get the whole verse in there. So let's see what's going on with the book of Ecclesiastes. He's about to reach his conclusion, and uh, we want to make good sense of it. So that word judgment is going to come in very strongly in the end. So let's just keep going. Verse 10, remove vexation from your heart and put, away from your, put pain away from your body for youth and the dawn of life are vanity. Chapter 12, verse 1, remember also your creator in the days of your youth before the evil days come. So not only follow your heart, but also maybe the greater commandment here is in those young days, remember your creator. Remember who made you. Because evil days are coming. This, this is the, the dawn of life, and that sun will set. So before the evil days come, before the years draw near, of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. So it's making an assumption here that the happy time of life is the beginning. And if you think about it, I look at my children playing, and I don't really want to be a kid again, but I do envy a lot of ways, there are no responsibilities. You know, like the highest level responsibility today is do the dishes, you know, feed the dog. And I'm like, wow, that sounds so easy. That sounds so simple. You ever felt that way? You know, I don't want to go back to grade school, but wow, all I had to do was study. <laughs> wow, that was so simple, you know. So much harder. Now, there's this kind of assumption then as you grow in years that Ecclesiastes is saying that you're going to reach a point where you say, I, I have no pleasure in this anymore. And not to say that everyone feels that way when they get old, get near the end of life, but I have seen this attitude. I know you've probably seen it, experienced it. Maybe, maybe you have this attitude, but you reach a point where you're done. And we have an expression in our culture where we just say, I'm, I'm, I'm ready to go home. I've visited many people in a nursing home that would say something to that effect. I'm just, just ready to go home. So he's telling us, rejoice or remember our Creator before we get to that point. And then we're going to have a very interesting um, allegory, so to speak, happening in verse 2. So before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain. So remember your Creator before the storm comes. Now, what do you think the storm is going to be in this context? This is going to be death. You're going to grow old and die. So remember your Creator before that day. And here it says, verse 3, In the day when the keepers of the house tremble. Now, it won't be obvious yet at this point, but the keepers of the house are your hands. And as you get older, what happens to the hands in the, in the imagery here? They're, they're shaking. Right? You see, all of these things are going to, in some way, be a metaphor for the waning of life, the aging of life. So now the keepers of the house are trembling. The strong men are bent. So, of course, even culturally, we, we think of an old person. If I draw a stick figure on the, the board and I want to make it look like an old person, this is maybe you know wrong of me, but I, I curve the back and put the head a little droopy. Okay, sorry, don't, don't judge me. But I mean, you all know the visual imagery. It's a biblical visual imagery. So even the strong man is bent, maybe holding the walker here. They didn't have walkers. And then the next one, and the grinders 
cease because they are few. Now, my translation says grinders. Your translation maybe will say women who grind, um, if you have that. And it's just because it's a feminine noun. This is actually the Hebrew expression to refer to teeth. So the teeth aren't grinding because they're few. Well, what's happened here? There's no dentures invented yet. So there's just not many teeth in there to do the grinding anymore. So we're, you, you see the imagery here, getting old. And those who look through the windows are dimmed. Well, what are the dimming windows? So, yeah, so, yeah, so you see the, the imagery here is that the body is failing. It's getting old. You can't do everything you used to do. The doors on the street are shut. Now, you can interpret that several different ways, but the idea, I think, mostly is just that your ability to get into and out of different places is just, it's like the world is closed off to you. I know Anna's grandmother, when she comes over to the house, and her hearing and her eyesight are failing, and so it's hard for her to participate. It's like she's in her own little room with the doors closed and can't really participate in the conversation that's happening in the room. And you can see how that can be depressing and Maybe even a statement, I have no pleasure in them, and the end of verse 1 would come from something like that. So, so the, the doors are shut. It says, when the sound of the grinding is low, one rises up at the sound of a bird. Now, you read your study Bible or commentary, you get a hundred different interpretations of that. I think the one that made the most sense to me is you rise and stir at just the slightest sound. You hear it, just, you can't sleep well, the, the sleep isn't as good as it used to be, and so everything's just getting harder, because all the daughters of song are brought low, and that may be a reference to the fact that you can't hear the songs of the birds anymore. Maybe your hearing is getting to a point where you just can't appreciate some of these joyful things that used to be exciting in life. So for me, I go out in the backyard, and, and I don't just hear you know, the, the birds off in the background. I have to deal with the fact that there are guineas. Anybody ever seen a guinea? You've been to my house and seen the guineas? All right, they're really cool. And they're terrible all at the same time. Some days I love them. Some days I want to eat them. And who knows? You know, maybe one day one of those will happen. But anyway, so let's just, I go out in the the yard, and they make this, they have this screaming sound that's uh, annoying. When they make that sound, it's like, fire up the barbecue pit. It's time. Um, But they have this other sound. It's just this, and I can't even mimic it. It's just this chirpy, weird, you don't know, if you've never heard a guinea, you don't know what this is the first time you hear it. And I go outside, but... I get to enjoy aspects of the farm that are just as simple as the different sounds that animals make. So we had three baby goats born this week. So two on Christmas Eve, boy and girl. So Chris and Eve, if we had a third one, there'd have been a must. But Chris and Eve were born that day. And then uh, what's the third one born the day after Christmas? Uh, Abby, what's the new one's name? Rose. Rose was born um, the day after Christmas. And the fun thing about that is the baby goats have a much more distinct what do you call it, a ba, a nay, uh, whatever you call that, that sound, that meh thing they do, um, it's just, I don't know, it's so delightful to go out in the, the yard and you see them hopping around, and it's like, oh man, this is, this is good. I just, I, you know, sometimes they, I want to kill them because they get out of the fence, and it's just like, I, it drives me mad, but then other times, it's walking there, I'm like, man, this is the good life. Wow, this is such a good thing, but I can't imagine having to deal with the responsibilities of them, but not being able to see them, not being able to hear them, maybe having, like, having to do everything with gloves on and with sunglasses on and not getting the full picture. That's kind of the idea that's happening in all of these verses. So remember the Creator when you're young, because the day's coming where it's going to be a lot harder to enjoy any of these gifts He's given. 
The older you get, the harder this may be. So the songs are brought low. Verse 5, they are afraid of what is high and of terrors in the way. So think in their culture, an, an older person is kind of defenseless walking through town, going from one city to another. There's terrors on the way, easy target for criminals, or they're afraid of what is high. And the idea is, you know, just falling when you're old. So all of these images are of this falling of life. And then I love this one, the almond tree blossoms. You know what color almond tree blossoms are? White. So what's the almond tree blossoming on the older person? Gray hair. That's a beautiful picture uh, of how to do that. But unfortunately, I'm going to lose all of my hair before I get the gray head. I've always wanted to, because there's this um, passage in, in Deuteronomy that's uh, rise up and honor the gray-headed. And I'm like, one day I, wa- I want to be able to stand up with a solid head of gray hair and tell the congregation to rise. Uh, sorry, maybe it's just fantasy in my head. I'm never going to get to have it now. You know, my hair's going to go away. But that, that's the idea. So the almond tree blossoms. The grasshopper drags itself along. Now, the Hebrew there is incredibly difficult to translate. There's several different ways that could go. It could be that even a grasshopper is too heavy to carry. Or it could be that like a grasshopper, or a locust to be more precise, when it's got all of its eggs, it carries them around, and then after they give birth, it dies. <laughs> so it's like you just reach the end. Or it could be that the grasshopper is just so weak, even its own body weight is, is too much. But all of have the same idea, just the, the frailty of life near the end. And desire fails. I won't go into all the possibilities of what that means. Um, because man is going to his eternal home. What is the eternal home referenced here? It's it's death, but it's, maybe we could call it Sheol, often in the Old Testament, the idea that your body goes into the grave. Um, But we're going to have something a little more precise um, explained basically in the next few verses. So let's just dive in and see. The mourners go about the streets. So this person now has died. So before the silver, silver cord is snapped or the golden bowl is broken, or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain, or the will broken at the cistern. And so all of those are just illustrations of something breaking. That's all it comes down to. You could read a lot of allegory into that, but the idea in every scenario is the thing breaks, and now it no longer can do its purpose. So it shattered. In verse 7, you see the reality, and dust returns to the earth. Now that is a direct reference to Genesis. And what's going on in that? Returning to the earth is for dust you are and to dust you will return. This is how God refers to the death of a human being. And so we call that Sheol. You get put back into the ground. For from the ground you were taken. Every person, we see this throughout the Old Testament, especially in the wisdom literature, good or bad, you end up in Sheol, which means the ground. We put a hole, we put you in it, or a cave, we put you in it. You go back into the earth. Now note, this is very significant in terms of how they understand the world and consequently in the New Testament, how we understand it. It says the dust returns to the earth as it was and the spirit returns to God who gave it. You go two different directions when you die. See that? This is very significant. The body goes down and the spirit Presumably, and this is referenced earlier in Ecclesiastes, so it's mentioned you can't see it, but it's, what's the Spirit do? Rather than going down, it rises, it goes up. So presumably up would be the direction of what? 
heaven. Very good. So this is a very clear picture in the Old Testament. It's incredibly reinforced in the New Testament. So there's this progressive revelation to the Bible. We don't know everything in the Old Testament. We know more as it gets through, but we have it all now. We have the complete revelation of God in the New Testament. It's very clear that a human person is two things, both body and soul or or spirit. I would say those are the same. So you are a body and you are a spirit. That's why when you go to a funeral, you'll get a lot of interesting statements from the preacher. Sometimes like, you know, Granny's she's not here anymore. She's in heaven. Well, that's probably not the most accurate way to say that. Um, But what the preacher's trying to say is Granny's spirit is with the Lord in heaven and bliss. It's great. It's wonderful, whatever the funeral is. Yet, this is definitely her body. And in Christian tradition, you don't desecrate that body. This is special. It's God's creation. It's still image-bearing. It's, it's God's work. And so we save that body. We put it in the ground. We put it in the tomb. We do something with it because we believe that something is coming later where the spirit and the body will rejoin. Now, what do we call that in the New Testament? Here's your quiz. Resurrection. It's the standing up is literally what the word resurrection means. That body will stand back up and the spirit will come back together. Now, the Old Testament doesn't give us a super clear picture of what all is going on after that point of death. But this is one of the clearest pictures in the Old Testament of the idea that the body separates from the spirit at the moment of death. The body then goes into the earth and the spirit goes into heaven. So it returns to the God who gave it. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. Now, technically, the Koheleth, the preacher, just finished. And the next paragraph, or depending on how your Bible divides it up, is commentary on whoever put the book together on what the preacher just said. So let's see how the preacher um, gets summarized. So besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge. Weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. Now we could say the words of delight um, were very sparse in the book of Ecclesiastes. Instead, we find them in what book of your Bible? Proverbs. Very good. There's a lot of words of delight in Proverbs, but there's not as many words of delight in Ecclesiastes. Now, before we go further, let me go ahead and fill in a few blanks on the outline, or I will forget to do that. So, Ecclesiastes has technically finished its main content, so let's fill in these two main ideas. This is how he ends the book. I think it's significant that he ends in this place. Number one, you can probably guess it, you will die. This is just the reality of Ecclesiastes. We know this already. Um, we, We don't necessarily want to think about it, but we know this about life. And we see that life is short from his scheme of history and certainly from that of eternity. You will die. Secondly, and this is just as important for Ecclesiastes, you will face judgment. So consequently, what he's arguing for is not that we should live in such a way that we live longer, but we should live in such a way that we stand judgment more safely. There's a big difference between the two types of living. Now, we're going to model that out when we talk about how wisdom works. So, let's verse 11. Let's dive back in, and then we will pull this together. The words of the wise are like goads and like nails 
Firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books, there is no end. And much study is a weariness of the flesh. Now, I loved to quote that verse in college because it was like I had a biblical mandate that, uh, you know, you can study too hard and maybe you should just enjoy life. It's getting at something a little deeper than that, though. The reality is, the harsh reality, and in my day and age, and I've mentioned this before, I love technological innovation. I love science. I watch YouTube videos on physics, and sometimes I feel like I'm an amateur physicist, and the reality is, I've just watched some YouTube videos. You know, I don't really understand any of this stuff, but the reality behind that reality is the experts in these fields only scrape the surface of the real world. We don't really know. So many things we have absolute confidence in, and we're still working out. One of the harsh realities of Ecclesiastes, and it's still a reality of our day, the world we live in now, is you cannot understand the world. Not, not really. You never will. So there's this temptation for us to think, well, if we just figured it out, if I just knew all the rules, if I knew all the variables then I can do this just right. The reality is, is you don't know all the variables and you never will. This is why we have to have grace when we disagree theologically. Because how many of you think your theological opinions are correct? Raise your hand. Of course I'll think mine are correct. But I don't know everything. You know, you might know something I don't know. I disagree with every one of you in here on something. Like what thing? I don't know. Let's just talk. We'll figure it out. I'll disagree on something. You'll disagree with me on something because we have all this disagreement because we don't know everything. It'd be easy to say, well, here's all the facts there is, period. We could reach some proper conclusions, but the reality is that doesn't exist. We don't have any of that. We do not understand the world, but furthermore, you cannot understand God's ways. So we deal with this most classically in Christianity when we're talking about the problem of evil. So you're probably familiar with this. You, maybe if you don't know it in formal terms, you've at least dealt with it in simple terms. It was directly stated in very clear way, actually, surprisingly, in the, the Superman movie. Was it Batman versus Superman? Anybody see that movie? Uh, maybe I bring up a bad subject. But the, the author, the author, Lex Luthor, not the author, Lex Luthor makes this statement at one point, and he just, he's defining the problem of evil that we've been wrestling with for millennia is that if God is all-powerful and he's all-good, there couldn't be evil. There's evil, so he's not one of the other two. So either he's all-powerful and not good, or he's good and not all-powerful because evil exists. And so we've, for millennia, wrestled with how to reconcile those three propositions, that God is all-powerful, all-good, yet there is evil in the world, and we want to have a clear, satisfactory, solid answer as to why. Why do all three things, how can all three, three things be? God, why did you let this happen? How could you let that happen? And we could come up with specific answers to specific things, like why is there general evil in the world? Like why do hurricanes kill innocent people? All of that is easy to explain as a result of the fall. There's easy things to explain, but then you have to ask the question, if God knew this was going to happen, he's omniscient, then why did he create Adam and Eve in the first place? Why put the tree in the garden at all if he knew 
it was going to happen. You say, well, the free will defense or the eschatological greatest good defense. There's lots of things in theology that we can go through. There's three main categories of ways to try to answer, help beef up this conversation and satisfy the the accusation. But the fact of the matter is, is that somehow this was part of God's plan. That's what the book of Job was about. And in the very end, Job, you know what God's answer was to Job? In layman's terms, Job, you're too stupid to understand. You don't even understand the question you're asking. You don't have a clue. It's a mystery. You, you can't, if you peeled back the curtain and you looked, you wouldn't even know what you were looking at. And he spends three chapters telling Job that Job doesn't have a clue and gives him no answer whatsoever. Because the harsh reality is, as much as you want to be able to answer questions like this with dogmatic precision, the Bible does not give them. We have a theological term for that. We just call it a mystery. But really what we mean by that is you can't know. It's not that we just don't know. It's that it's beyond you. God works, and we say it all the time, mysterious ways. He's beyond us. And so Ecclesiastes is reminding us that God is beyond us, that his ways are are beyond us, that reality is beyond us, because every time we try to grab hold of reality and think we have control, we're really dishonoring the Lord, because there's only one who does. It's only the Lord who's in control of the flow of history. It's only the Lord who has power over my life. It's only the Lord who has power over what we would call chance or fate. It is only the Lord who knows what day will be my end and how we got there. It's only the Lord who can do all of these things. And when we try to take control, there's only one being that we're trying to take that control from, and it's God himself. And so rather than take control of our world and do what we think is best, Ecclesiastes has a much more simplistic answer, and that's going to be verse 13. The end of the matter is this. All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. So the conclusion of the matter is fear the Lord. Well, fear the Lord, we mean that in two specific ways when we read Ecclesiastes. All of Scripture, you can think about the fear of the Lord in these two particular categories. So here's how we're going to fill in the last sets of blanks. It says, fear the Lord by submitting to His providence. There's a sense in which we kind of let go and recognize I'm not in control of everything that happens in my life. But I serve a God who is. I serve a God who's meticulous, who's planned, who does things on purpose towards particular ends. Our God, theologically, the word whimsical, we think of whimsical, we think of children's stories. Whimsical is actually a religious term that means the gods of paganism would wake up and be in a bad mood today. They didn't have plan. They didn't work things out. They just lived by the by the feeling of the moment, honestly, much like many of us do. But the reality is our God has never once just going, hmm, maybe today I'll try this. Our God doesn't operate that way. He's solid. He's steadfast. He's faithful. If God makes a promise, 
then what's the likelihood that he'll bring that promise to fulfillment? And that's why we say in the New Testament, all the promises of God are yes and amen. This is the God we serve. So let's fear him by submitting to that providence. And lastly, by following his commandments. It's far more important that we do what the Lord tells us to do than that we understand what the Lord tells us to do. He knows. He knows in a way he can't completely explain to us. And we are obligated to obey him. So fear of the Lord is not something that ends in the New Testament. In fact, some of our best fear of the Lord passages come from the New Testament. The book of Hebrews, it's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. or He is a consuming fire. Now, I do want to end, however, by looking at a passage in 1 John. And this is how we're going to wrap it all up, because this fear is something that should be part of your everyday life. You, the wisdom itself is the fear of the Lord. So turn to 1 John chapter 4, because we have a passage that says we shouldn't fear God. And I want to relate that passage to what's going on here. I'm going to tell you we should fear God, period. At all times, you should have fear of the Lord. And now, often we say, we try to peel back from that word and say, well, by fear, we really just mean kind of respect. Um, I don't think that's what the Bible has in mind ever when it it says the word fear. Certainly respect is part of that fear, but it is only a part of that fear. Um, When people experience the presence of the Lord throughout the Old and New Testament, it usually involves death, curses, plagues, um, blindness, even in the New Testament, in the church itself, Ananias and Sapphira lie to the Holy Spirit, and what happens to them in the church? Kill over dead. It definitely happened. In fact, we find that some people in the church in Corinth didn't treat the Lord's Supper with the proper respect that it deserved, and what happened to them? They got sick and died. God killed them. Um, we, we see lots of examples of fear of the Lord in the New Testament, still having a sense of literal fear of the Lord. But if we read in 1 John um, chapter 4, verse 18, it says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. And now that fear in that context is specifically talking about the fear of the Lord. Not fear in general, not fear out there, but fear in the Lord. But the reason is because fear has to do with punishment. All right, so let's read one verse before where we started. Verse 17. By this is love perfected in us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Fear of what? Judgment. From who? From God. So, perfect love casts out fear. Who's perfect love? Yours. Now, yours comes very clearly a few verses before we love, or sorry, verse later. We love because he loved us first. So the love that's casting out fear is our love and devotion to the Lord. But the reality is, if you don't serve the Lord, you don't love him, you don't obey his commandments, should you still fear the Lord? Absolutely. Judgment is before you. This love that casts out fear 
is actually the doctrine of assurance. You ever felt like at times you trust in the, the work of Christ, you're just not sure how well your trust in that trust is. In other words, you have faith that Jesus can save you, but you don't have a lot of faith in your faith in Jesus. Do I really trust him enough? I trust that he's enough, but have I trusted enough? Those are two different topics. One of them is assurance. Assurance is hard because every time you sin, what happens? Where's your assurance go? It goes away. That's just part of it. It's one thing when you, man, I'm doing good. Life is great. I'm loving the Lord. I feel very firm in my relationship with the Lord, and you feel confident. Then you go do a few stupid things. And your confidence goes. Well, that's just your assurance. Your assurance is tied to your experience, certainly. But salvation is not. Salvation is tied explicitly to the work of Christ. Now, I'm not trying to get into the whole assurance versus justification debate, but what I want to emphasize here is that fear of the Lord, in its proper sense, never goes away in the Christian life. Here's what I'm telling you. How you live your life should be oriented around doing what the Lord told you to do because you have a healthy fear of what he will do if you don't. He will judge. He is king. He is in control. So as we go into 2020, what's important as we make resolutions, as we seek to bring change in our lives, is not that we try to make everything right, gain greater control over my day, It's much more important that we gain a greater fear of the Lord. Let 2020 be the year where you honor His name. Let 2020 be the year where you live for His glory and not your own. Let 2020 be the year that you submit and obey the Scriptures, regardless of what that costs you. Let's let that be the centerpiece of life, and that is the centerpiece of the message of the book of Ecclesiastes. Fear the Lord and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man.